right, welcome to another episode of Practical PH. My name is Kushbu Goyle, and I am a pulmonary hypertension specialist at Cedar sinai Medical Center. Today's episode is part of our series on careers in pulmonary vascular disease. We're lucky to be joined by Dr. Tim Lamb, who is a professor of medicine at National Jewish Health and the University of Colorado, and is the director of pulmonary vascular biology at National Jewish. He also recently completed his term as the chair of ATS's Pulmonary Circulation Assembly. Dr. Lamb, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we're excited to have you share your perspective with our listeners, you know, many of whom are interested, or fellows who are interested in pulmonary vascular disease or our early career faculty members. And so I'd like to start by asking you about your pH story and how did you get into pulmonary hypertension? All right. Thank you so much for having me, Kush. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, my pH story is kind of long, but interesting. I, um, I've had a longstanding interest in cardiopulmonary medicine that really started after high school when I did um, social service in Germany as a paramedic. And that really got me hooked on cardiopulmonary medicine and the heart and the lung and how they function. And then as a medical student, I did my thesis in left heart failure, uh, trying to foster that interest. And then when I was a resident, Things got really interesting because at that time, it was kind of a booming time for pulmonary hypertension. There were several new drugs coming out, such as sildenafil and bosantin. And um, we also started using prostacyclins more often. And there were also some really cool papers coming out um, in that in that area. It's a very stimulating time. And then I had the fortune to go to Kenya for two months as a senior resident. And interestingly there, I, I thought I would see a lot of TB and infections and you know HIV, all of which I did. But I also ended up seeing a lot of people with right heart failure, especially women from chronic indoor smoke exposure. And that was very, very eye-opening to me. And I just saw amazing physiology and pathophysiology that got me hooked on pulmonary medicine and pulmonary vascular medicine even more so that then I decided when I was a fellow to really become an expert in, in cardiopulmonary interactions and in pulmonary vascular medicine. And then after that, I just had the good fortune of working with great role models um, in the field of pulmonary vascular medicine that, that really showed me that this is an amazing area with a lot of potential for new discovery and it's also an area where I feel you can really make a difference as a physician, since we do have fairly potent drugs available to treat the disease. I think that was something that was also very, very important to me that I'm in a field where I feel I can really make patients better and you know, take somebody that is really sick and start them on medicines and, and improve their quality of life and their longevity. Yeah, that's so interesting to hear. I feel like that a resonates like a lot with us and you know a lot of us who are interested in the PVD world the fact that it's such a booming field we have made a lot of advancements but at the same time there's so much more that I think we still have to unravel and learn about it and I think you touched upon this a little bit in what you were talking about but you know what drew you specifically to a career in what we call academic medicine and that too as a physician scientist yeah that's a great question um Kushbu um so academic medicine feels to me as a place where we're able to think and innovate and also have time to breathe and learn. And it was important to me to be able in an environment where I can do that. So um, it was pretty clear for, for me from 
even being a resident that I wanted to be in academic medicine, because again, I, it was important for me to have room to think and breathe and innovate and also to teach and learn, right? I think that's another big component of, of academic medicine that you are able to learn from your amazing role models and that you're also able to pass on your knowledge to your students and residents and to people in the laboratory. How would you define being a physician scientist? Because that's a term that we talk about a lot as, you know, one form of academic medicine. Yeah, physician scientist is an interesting term because I think we use it a lot, but you're right. A lot of people don't really understand what it really means, right? I think another term that we don't use as much, but that goes in a similar direction is the term disease biologist. So I think a physician scientist is somebody that, you know, obviously is a physician, but that is also doing science in order to better understand a disease or a process. So, you know, as compared to a PhD that is primarily focusing on research and as compared to a traditional physician that is predominantly doing clinical medicine and seeing patients, the physician scientist combines these two terms, right? So you essentially have two jobs. You have a job as a physician and you have a job as, and you have a job as a scientist and you're combining those two um, as, as, as good as you can kind of like that about our academic medicine lives that we get to wear many hats and it and it can change and it, it doesn't need to be the same. That's yeah, that's a really important point. And I feel sometimes people get stressed out a lot about what kind of career they want to pursue, right? Do you want to be a clinician or do you want to be an educator or do you want to be a scientist? And I think what you said is really, really important. Things are not static, right? Things things are always in flux and your job description may change over time either because you want it or sometimes it just happens right so one of the big pieces of advice I have for people is to always keep in mind that nothing is static right you can always change your career focus you can always move from one field to the other and traditionally it's a little bit easier to change from a research heavy career to a clinical career, but you can actually go the other way as well. And I know a lot of people that have done that and that have done that well. Yeah, I think that's so helpful to hear because I remember even when I was a fellow, sometimes you do get worried that, oh, I'm not allowed to change or you can't, but it you really can. And that's the wonderful aspect, you know, of this type of a profession. I think another question that a lot of fellows might have is how do you navigate the process of searching for faculty positions and what are some important practical considerations related to this specific type of a job search? Because it's honestly quite different than the whole process that we're used to for the majority of our medical career, where there's a very protocolized timeline for you apply and then you interview and then you either get accepted into medical school and then you go through an algorithmic match process. And so how did you navigate that? And maybe what advice do you have for people in that in that boat right now? That's a complicated question, but I think the short answer is important thing is to think about what you want to do with your life, right? So are you somebody that is more interested in clinical medicine or are you somebody that is more interested in research, right? Do you want to work in an academic environment or do you want to work more in a you know private practice slash community hospital environment or you want to go into industry? So I think those, those are the, the, the first questions you should ask yourself think about what you want like at this specific stage um, in your life and and I think 
the important questions that then follow are, where can you really do what you want to do? If you have a strong interest in pulmonary vascular disease and you want to be a pulmonary vascular disease scientist, you should probably go to a place where there are lots of opportunities to do pulmonary vascular research, right? And if you are at a place where you cannot do that, then you may have, have to go somewhere else. So I think that's, that's a really important question, right? So where can you do what you want to do? And then building on that is, is there somebody there who you can learn from? Again, if you want to become an expert in pulmonary vascular disease, you should have a mentor in that field, right? If that person is at your own institution, great. But if they are somewhere else, then, then you may have to go somewhere else. Another question is, is there room for you? So if there are already 10 people at your current institution, that might not be the best fit for you because you might not be able to develop a niche, right? On the other hand, if you want to go somewhere and there's 10 people there already, again, it might be hard to find your way in. So is there room for you at, at, at wherever you want to go? Do you fit in from a personality standpoint, right? That's sometimes something we don't think about a lot, but I think you want to be somewhere where kind of you and your personality fit in. I think some more you know, specific things, salary. Would your salary allow you to do what you want to do? Do your job obligations allow you to do what you want to do, right? So if you want to do research, you want to make sure you have enough protected time. Um, you cannot really do a lot of research if you are tied up seeing patients um, five, six, seven days a week. And then lastly, I would also say, you know, think about is this a place where you and your partner and your family will be happy, right? We all have things that are important to us outside of work. I think it's important to be somewhere where, where you can do these things and have a fulfilling life outside of work. And then again, lastly, keep in mind, nothing is permanent. You can always change. Let's say there are two institutions that really you know, fit you in terms of your goals and they, you know, they're kind of the same on paper, but then one is your own institution where you did your fellowship and the other is moving to a different institution. And I think there's pros and cons to both of those. And I was wondering whether you have any insight to how one might approach weighing those two options of staying where you are versus moving on to a different institution. Yeah, that's, that's a common scenario. And I feel often people end up having to make the decisions on, on, on what to do. And I think it depends a little bit um, on whether you want to do clinical medicine or if you want to do research. I think if you want to do clinical medicine, it might be a little bit easier to move to a new institution because I think these roles are sometimes fairly easily, or I should say they are better defined sometimes. And I think going to a new institution and you know, either take over a program or start a program a little bit easier if you are a clinician. But since we're really focusing on kind of academic medicine and, and research, let's talk about that in, in a bit more detail. So obviously staying where you are is, is always a safer move, right? You know the environment, you know the people, you know how things work. So it's definitely less risky. You may also be at a stage in your career where you have carved out your niche or your potential niche. So you don't really have to go somewhere and explore these things. You can essentially keep doing what you're doing, right? You don't have to create a new environment and, and a new niche. And then lastly, your mentor and and collaborators will be there already, right? So you essentially know exactly who you would be working with, who you would be learning from, and I think you would also have a pretty good idea about what your job description and your research would look like. 
on the other hand, I think the cons of staying where you are are, you know, you may get a little bit less of a competitive offer because they may take you for granted and they may just give you like, you know, more or less a standard package. Whereas at another institution, there might be a little bit more room for negotiating different, you know, conditions, like a different package. Another con is, you know, whenever you stay where you are, obviously you will be at least initially in your mentor's shadow, right? So it might be a little bit more difficult to show independence. But I think if I were to like weigh the pros and cons, it's probably easier and better to stay where you are, especially if you're thinking about pursuing a career development award and then move at a later time. Um, I think it's easier to move once you have your K or your R. But if you're in this like early stage that I also consider somewhat vulnerable, I, I think it's probably less risky and more productive to stay where you are, at least initially. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And also, I think this varies from, you know, one institution to the other, but were you expected to have a grant or funding in hand before you could actually transition from fellow to a full-time faculty member? And is it, I don't know if possible is the right word, but is there some leeway to be able to negotiate for protected research time if you don't have that grant in hand, but you're working towards that pathway? Mm, yeah, that's that's a really, really good question. And I would agree with you, Krushbu, it varies a little bit from institution to institution. I would say in general, people want to say some kind of promise for success, right? They want to see that you have potential. So if you have a grant, that is great. Um, and that definitely helps. And I would define grants very loosely. This could be a small internal funding mechanism that gives you a little bit of money or resources to work with. Nobody expects you to have a career development award, right? But I think if you have some kind of either like a small local grant or some kind of foundation grant during your fellowship or research training, that's definitely helpful, but it's not a must, okay? I think what they really want to see is your commitment to essentially write a career development award. I think another piece of, yeah, I call it academic currency, right? Or academic capital would be a really nice paper, right? Or more than one paper. Let's say if you don't have hands, but you have published a couple of really nice papers or even one really nice paper, that's another you know, piece that you can put on the table and that shows people you are really committed to doing this and there is potential. So having a grant helps, but it is definitely not necessary. Yeah, absolutely. I think kind of commitment and your passion, and that can be shown in different ways. The topic about grants, this may be something that people are not as familiar with as they're entering their training period, and also depends on the institution. And I remember when I was a fellow, that's really the first time that I learned about the alphabet soup of NIH funding, which is what I refer to it as here about this T to F to K to R pathway. You mentioned career development awards. And so just for our early career or, you know, trainees who are listening in, could you just basically define like, what is a T32? What is an F32? What is a K or a career development award? Yeah, the alphabet soup, that's, that's fascinating. And you know, believe it or not, I still learn new things every time and I hear about like new letter and number combinations that I haven't heard about. And, and I would say 
honestly, if you don't know what they mean, don't hesitate to ask. Sometimes people are just intimidated because they feel like they need to know. That's not true. Please, you know, if you don't know what an abbreviation means, just ask and people will actually value your your curiousness and your interest to learn. So having gotten that out of the way, let's talk a little bit about those. So I think the big ones are the T's, the F's, the K's, and the R's, okay? So let's start with the T. So the T is a training grant, okay? So typically this would be something like a T32 or a T35. And the important thing here is that this is a grant that is given to an institution and to a senior investigator to train people, right? So I'm the co-PI on the T32, right? So this grant will not be given to you, but essentially you can then get a piece of the money that is given to the institution to support your career, okay? So a T is a training grant. This is something that you would go on early in your career, often, this would be the first grant that people go on. So um, a T32 would then essentially allow you to get protected time to do your research. And at this point, the salary is actually being paid through the NIH and not from the institution. So that's why institutions like having those. And then in return, you will get the commitment from the institution and the environment from the institution to, to start your research career, right? So that's the T32. The next transition then would be something like an F. So these come as an F31 or an F32. These are still training grants, but these grants will actually be given to you. And it will be given to you to develop your research in more detail. So let's say if I'm in a pulmonary vascular biology lab and I have done a lot of functional and hemodynamic research, but now I want to start learning about big data and how to generate big data and how to analyze big data, then I could write an F32 to get um, protected time for two, three, four years of training to, to learn about that. The K, the K is essentially the career development award. These come as KO8s or as K23 um, typically. One is more clinical, the other one is more basic science oriented. These again will be grants that are given to you. And this is really kind of a long-term grant that you will get to establish independence, right? So these are typically five-year grants from the NIH that will allow you to carve out your own niche, right? You will still be working under a mentor. You would typically be in that mentor's lab or research group. So you would not have your own space, but you would have your own office. And very importantly, these grants protect 75% of your time, right? So you really, for five years, will have 75% of protected time to generate data that will then allow you to write an R. And then the R, so typically the R01, that's kind of the, a big grant, you know, four to five years more than a million dollars, you know, sometimes two, three, four, five million dollars to do your own independent research, right? So once you have an R, you are considered an independent researcher. And that's when you would go to your you know, division chief or department chair and ask for your own lab space. And often these things are like a big step to getting promoted, right? So the R, like once you have an R, you're essentially considered to be fully independent and you have kind of made it in academic medicine. That's the T to F to K to R transition. And I will say these are all NIH grants. Um, they're also 
grants from other institutions, such as the Department of Veterans Affairs or the American Heart Association, DOD, that kind of are similar. Obviously, they don't have different names, but they will support these different stages of your career development. That's so helpful. I love it. Demystifying the alphabet soup <laughs> funding. And also, like you mentioned, I think we have to remember that there are other avenues to getting funding. Do you want to like put a plug in for any, you know, grant that you think is is, is a good opportunity for early career, you know, investigators? Yeah, I, I do want to put a plug in. So a couple things that are important about this Kushbu is so this T to, to K to R transition, that's kind of the ideal thing, right? But to be honest, a lot of people don't follow that pathway and you can be successful without having any of these components. And you know, I think I'm a good example for that. I'm actually a foreign medical graduate, so I was not able to apply for many of these grants. So I actually, believe it or not, never really had a career development award because I was just not eligible for, for NIH funding until I was able to apply for an R. So there are a lot of other alternatives that you can pursue to you know, get some money and get some protected time. I had a two-year grant from the ATS that kind of served as my career development award. And that was, that was incredibly helpful. So just to put a plug in for some things that I think are great, especially for those people that cannot follow a traditional path, the ATS does have actually a large body of various funding mechanisms that people at various stages can apply to. One that I like a lot is the um, ATS Early Career Award for um, Pulmonary Vascular Disease. That's actually a two-year grant that people can apply for either once they started being on the faculty or if they are ready to transition to faculty. That's a great grant that I like a lot. Other things that I like a lot is, especially for people doing research in pulmonary vascular disease. The American Heart Association has several equivalents to the training grants and career development awards that the um, NIH is, is giving away. The uh, Pulmonary Hypertension Association has several grants. And then lastly, the um, Department of Veterans Affairs actually has a career development award that people can apply for. And also the VA has what's called VA Merit Awards that essentially are equivalents to R01 awards, they are a little bit less well-funded with regards to the amount of money that you get, but they actually cover a lot of protected time. And the other thing that's nice about the VA awards is you can apply three times, whereas for um, NIH awards, you typically can only apply two times before you have to put in a new submission. So that's that's also nice about the VA awards. So I know we, we covered a lot, but I think take-home message and important point here is there, there is room to get grants and funding outside of the traditional NIH pathway. And for a lot of people, these can be real um, lifesavers. Maybe to kind of wrap this upper end, can you share with us what your academic year looks like? What's your breakdown between research and clinical time? Yeah. And I think the important thing here is this will be very different depending on who, who you ask, right? And again, that's the fun thing about academic medicine. There's so much room for doing different things. But so my specific setup is I do about 80% research and about 20% clinical medicine. My, my clinical time typically involves a um, pulmonary hypertension clinic once, once a week. And then 
I personally decided to continue doing ICU medicine. So I do a little bit of ICU medicine as well, approximately around six weeks a year, four to six weeks a year. And then really the rest of my time is um, research and, and academics. And this is really a hodgepodge of lots of different things. You know, I spend a lot of time writing grants and thinking about grants. I'm also writing papers and thinking about papers. I spend a lot of my time mentoring um, other people. And, and I will say this is probably the most rewarding aspect of my career. Um, I, love, I love mentoring and I love other people. Uh, I love seeing other people do well. And I always tell my mentees, you know, I may not cure pulmonary vascular disease or right heart failure, but maybe somebody that I train will be able to do that. So mentoring and training takes up a big time of my professional life. And, and I'm very happy about that. Other things I do during my research time are service to either the institution or service to the academic field. So this would be things like being on committees, reviewing grants, reviewing papers. And then also I, I travel a lot. I go a lot to meetings. So it's, it's very diverse and it changes all the time. But that's one thing I really love about my work. Yeah, there's never a dull moment. That's for sure. All right. Well, Dr. Lamb, again, thank you so much for sharing your professional journey with us. You know, I think we and all the budding PVD physician scientists or whatever term we'd like to use really appreciate your insights. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm just so amazed by all the amazing work that the people that are early in their careers are doing. And I think the future of pulmonary vascular medicine is extremely bright. And I'm looking forward to seeing everybody do really, really well. And to our listeners, stay tuned for our upcoming podcasts on other career pathways in pulmonary vascular disease and more things PH.